morning, church. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors around this place. I want to start off by saying Happy Father's Day. Listen, uh, bacon, donuts. Uh, yeah, man, it's, it's hard to, you can't beat. Uh, you come to church, you get to have coffee, you get a piece of bacon, a donut, uh, you know, worship Jesus. It's, uh, it's hard to complain, isn't it? I want to say uh, before we dive in, uh, just the importance, I want to thank you dads who are leaning in to the high calling of leading your home, loving your family, serving your church, growing in Christ-likeness. There's a shortage. One of the greatest needs in our world is for men, and especially dads, to grow in, in their reflection of the triune God, the, the integrity and the heart of the Father, the selflessness of Christ, the nearness and the intimacy of the Spirit. We, we need more men like that. So, so, so guys, keep it up. Yeah. My question this morning is, what do you do when you feel like the world around you is, is out of control? Like whether it's the small details of our, our life or like the, the big details that make the headlines of world news, it's easy. When you, when you look at the world, when we look at the world around us, it's easy to think like, is God actually in control here? Who's actually running the show? I remember uh, a few weeks ago at a park, I saw a small lady and a huge dog. And the dog was, uh, you know, w charging ahead. And as like the lady was just almost like she was just skipping across the, the sidewalk, keeping up with this dog. And you're like, who's leading who here? Who's, who's, walking, who's walking whom? But there was a certain point where this lady, this little lady gives the leash a yank and that enormous beast just stopped dead in his tracks. So at first there was this illusion of, of control with the leash. But then at a certain point, this lady with one yank of that leash showed the dog and showed everyone in the park who was really boss, right? Who was really in control there. We need a constant reminder of who is really in control. Last week, we talked about delighting in God's instruction and his law and his Torah. Really, that's to help us be faithful to God. But here's the deal. It's, it's hard to live for God when you feel like he's not actually in control. So we need regular reminders of God's sovereignty, of God's promise to be with us and to not fail us, and the fact that he is indeed in control. So if the Psalms were a bicycle designed to tr help you travel through this life and into God's presence, uh, one of the pedals is being faithful to God, loving God's instruction. But the other pedal is God being faithful to us. Uh, the, the one pedal is the Torah, faithfulness to God's instruction. The other pedal is God's Messiah, that he has a king and he's in charge and he's controlled. And so as you go through the hills and valleys of life and you, the dark times and the light times and the sorrow and the joy and the lament and the praise and the doubt and the fear and the faith and the encouragement and the discouragement, all of that, that's the rhythm of the Psalms. We'll keep talking about Torah, Messiah, Torah. And so God, I wanna live faithful to you, but, but, but God, I need a reminder that you're gonna be faithful to me. 
God, I, 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 I want to love you and live for you and serve you, but God, I, I need a reminder that you're still on your throne. And so if, the, if Psalm 1 last week introduced that first pedal, Psalm 2 is going to introduce that second pedal, if that makes sense. And this is good to know as we go through the Psalms this summer. It's good to be aware of this rhythm so you can see it in there and, 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 and get that, that, that reminder because we need the, that same rhythm in our lives today. God, I want to live according to your word, but God, I need Jesus too. All right, so th this is why the Psalms, I think, constantly pointed people to the Messiah. So you'll read about the king. You'll read about the kingdom. You'll read about the Messiah. You'll read about God's anointed one. Why? Because in a world that doesn't make sense, Jesus is our hope. Right? The, the, every page, from page one until the very end, right, of this book, from the fall all the way to the future, like from when things in this world first went sideways, all the way through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and today in Wisconsin, and, and, and one day when it's all said and done, the trajectory of our hope is always pointed at Jesus. And Psalm 2 is designed, I believe, to remind us of just that. So as we read it, what we'll see is the, the psalmist, the writer, is kind of like a prayer coach. And what he's going to do, he's going to look at this chaotic world, but then he's going to look up into the heavens and see a confident God. And then he's going to look again at the chaotic world, but this time it'll be different because he'll look at it in light of that confident God. So what I want to do is just read this psalm, and I want us all to pray together and say, God, would you help us understand this and live it out and so on? And then uh, I want to walk through uh, one section at a time. And there's four sections, so if we only spend a half hour on each, we'll be out of here by uh, 2.30 or so. The, uh, what I want us to do is to kind of take this, borrow the psalmist's glasses and, and, and look at the world and look at God and look at the world the, kind of through his lenses, if that makes sense. So I'm going to read it now. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set, the, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the, the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you, would you pray with me now, church? 
So God, we, um, we look around us. There's a million reasons why we could think this world is out of your control. God, evil people doing evil things, chaotic things happening, tragic things happening. But when we open your word, we, we, we hear a different story. We are reminded, God, that this world is indeed not out of your control. That you are in heaven, you're still on your throne, and you're not nervous about any of it. Lord, would you help us trust you with everything we got? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first section here, right? We got these four, uh, three verse sections. The first section, what we're going to see is the psalmist, right? This prayer coach is, is going to look at this chaotic, crazy world. Verse one, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So the image you start to see is of the whole earth just full of people rebelling against God. And, 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 and it kind of feels like that the, the world is just sort of spinning out of God's control. And in verse 2, he says, uh, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So now it's not just the, the nations and the peoples that are rebelling against God and sort of spinning out of his control, but it's the powerful leaders and they're gathering together, and this is the image, and they're, they're gathering together, and they're taking counsel together, they're, they're cooking up new ways to rebel against God, and you notice it's not just specific, specifically against God, but also against his anointed. That means God's chosen king. Right? You remember when Samuel anointed David to be king? He took oil and poured it on David's head, and that symbolized this is the guy that God has chosen to be king. So, so the, the, the image we start to get is all the nations and all these leaders rebelling, not just against God, but also against God's king that he has chosen. And in verse 3, they're gathering together, and this is what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're rebelling specifically against the sovereignty of God. It's like evil, powerful people and all the people they lead saying, get this leash off me. I, I will not submit to God's restraints. They are rebelling against God's sovereignty. I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to call him king. I'm not going to let him be in charge. Now, notice that powerful people doing evil things in this world always points to a world that accuses God of not having control. Think, think this through. Powerful people are all doing evil things, doing ungodly things, always represent a world that God doesn't actually have control of. It, in our minds, at least, think about, you got powerful world leaders, and they're doing evil things and, and making evil decisions, and, and people say, see, if God's really in control, then he put that guy there. How could he get away, away with it? How can you say there's a God who's in control when, when that guy is able to do those evil things? Or, you know, the rich people, they always seem to have it so easy, and the poor people always suffer. And if God's really in control, that doesn't seem just. You see how uh, these situations seem to depict an accusation against God? Or pastors or religious leaders or spiritual leaders. 
And they're supposed to be the ones who are leading people to God. And then they do abusive things. So if God's really in control, why'd he allow that person to do that? You get the sort of thinking over and over and over again. Men in the home, they're specifically called, according to God's design, to be leaders and protectors. But if they're harsh, mean, unfaithful, abusive, the damage they do always leads people to saying, well, if God's really in control, that shouldn't happen to me. Right? Powerful people in the world doing evil things always paints a picture of a world that is outside of God's control. So the psalmist looks at this chaotic world. He sees the evil. He sees the chaos. He starts to wonder, what's going on here? I mean, is God really, God, are you even there? Why don't you do something about this? What's, what's going on? You get what, you get, can you resonate with where this guy finds himself after this first section? Now, here's the beautiful part of the psalm, though. He doesn't keep his eyes fixed on the world. No, in the second section, he's going to take his eyes from the chaotic world and point them heavenward. And he's going to remember that God indeed sees all this injustice and God has something to say about it. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he says, you know, you want to know God's sentiment toward this? He laughs. He just laughs. All these, these human kings, these puny human kings with their little human nations who would thumb their nose at God's authority and think they could somehow get away with it. You see, what we see here is that God is indeed not nervous. That's what the psalmist sees when he looks to the heavens, is a God who is not nervous. The idea that some human nation would be able to carry out a mutiny successfully against God's sovereignty is a joke. Not going to happen. But it's not a joke to the mutineers. It's high treason. And God has a, a message for the rebellious nations and the leaders. So God, first of all, he's not nervous. And then in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So it's not good news for those who rebel against God. And here's his message. Here's God's message for this chaotic world. For anyone that would think they, they could somehow slip past God's authority, get away with anything, this is God's message to them. Verse 6, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You hear? That's God's Solution. That's his response. That's his message. That's what he wants all the lowercase k kings to hear that are rebelling against him. He says, no, listen, you guys need to know something. I got a king. And in Mount, Mount Zion, it's like a throne. And I got a king, and he is in control. He's seated on that throne, and he is in control. This world is not out of his control. So in this second section, God sort of speaks to the nations about his king. Now in the third section, God's going to speak to his king about the nations. Verses 7 and 8. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You hear what God says to his king. He says the, the nations, these rebellious nations, they belong to you. You're my son. I'm gonna give you an inheritance, right? a possession, the ends of the earth. What does God have to say to his Messiah is that you now possess the earth and everything in it, everything in it, every molecule of it belongs to the king that God has chosen. And then he tells him this, verse 9, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. To break them is to rule them. And with a rod of iron means to rule them strictly with severity. See, the people who would think they can get away with rebelling against God forever, they've got another thing coming. God says to his Messiah, no, here's the deal. Here's the deal, my king. You're going to rule these people and they're not going to get away with anything. You'll dash them into pieces like a potter's, uh, a, a potter's uh, vessel here. Picture a terracotta pot just shattered and so many shards. There's no way you could ever put that together. See, the, the rebellious uprising of evil humans will not endure the rule of God's king. It will not stand. Jesus will win at the end of this thing. So you hear God's solution to the problem of a chaotic world? Here's what God says. Yeah, I know you think the world is out of my control, but here's the deal. I've got a king. He's my son, and I have given him authority over all things, complete control over everything. And he, he owns the earth and everything in it. And I don't know if you've put two and two together, if you haven't connected the dots yet, this is pointing, this is shouting, Jesus, 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 all the way. The disciples had no problems quoting this psalm to talk about Jesus. Jesus is God's king, and he's on his throne. That's God's solution to a world that seems outside of his control, is to remind us that Jesus is still seated on the throne. Now, in the final section, the prayer coach is going to look again at the world, but this time it's going to be different. He's going to see differently. He's going to feel differently. He's going to assess differently. And now, you know, now he's going to take his eyes and he's going to look at the world. And he, this time he's not going to be concerned. He's not going to look at the chaos and the evil in the world and, and be concerned about it. He's actually going to tell the evil chaos causers that they're the ones that ought to be concerned. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, lowercase, puny kings, be wise. Stop being foolish like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Stop being foolish. Be wise. 
Be warned. Like, pay attention, O rulers of the earth. And now, as I read verses 11 and 12, I want you to note the peculiar mix of terror and comfort that should be induced in a human being when faced with the concept of God's sovereignty. Listen to this, verses 11 and 12. He's gonna, he's gonna tell them what to do in light of this, this uh, rod iron breaking, uh, uh, potter's vessel dashing king. He says to all the other kings, the lowercase kings, everyone who would rebel against God, he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you, do you see the seeming contradiction here? Well, this, this king who is going to rule with a rod of iron. Serve him. He's the kind of guy you want to serve with fear. <laughs> Rejoice. He's a source of joy with trembling. Kiss the sun. That means to pay homage, to willfully and joyfully submit, to say, you're in control, not me. You're king, not me. I'm going to let you be the king around here. I'm not even going to con contest your kingship. You're lord. You're king. He's the kind of guy you want to submit to and follow his leadership, but you don't want to make him angry. His, his wrath is quickly kindled. Hey, but blessed are all who hide themselves in him or take refuge in him. She's like, what? What? So he's safe, but he's unsafe. He's comforting, but he's, but he's terrifying. You should love him, but you don't want to mess with him. <laughs> How should you make sense of this paradox? Like, should God be feared or, or, or loved? Should we, should we run to him or, or, or flee from him? Well, according to this psalm, it's both. And how do we reconcile that? I want to, uh, to kind of make this, kind of make sense, this concept. I want to show you a picture of my old, my old home. This is where I used to live. I lived there for four years. Uh, that's, the, that's the USS Germantown, LSD-42, stationed out of San Diego, California. Uh, this, this picture was taken in 2003 when I was leaving, uh, leaving San Diego. That's the Coronado Bridge in the background, headed to the Arabian Gulf for my first deployment. If you look up on the high, I'm one of the, in the white, one of the ones, like third to the back on the top part there, one of, one of the, in the white uniform, that's me. Um, this, she, she's like two fo football fields long. It's like 609 feet long. It's, uh, it's powered, this ship is powered by four diesel engines, each of which would almost take up this whole room. On the forecastle, there's twin 50 cals. On the fore and aft, there's 
close-in weapon systems, phalanx, a six-barreled uh, Gatlin guns that shoot 20-millimeter rounds at a rate of 150 rounds a second. There's two rolling airframe missile launchers. On the, uh, on the uh, port and starboard side, there's a Mark 19 grenade launcher on either side. There's a 25-millimeter cannon on either side. There's 50 cals on either side, and there's 50 cals on the on the forecastle, or sorry, on the fantail as well, and there's uh, M60 mounts all over. This, I don't even know how much this thing would weigh. Uh, we went through some insanely severe storms in that. I remember one particular storm. Uh, it was so severe that we were skirting just the outside of it, and um, it was the type of storm that they would lock you down. You could not leave your birthing except to go to your watch station. And when you would go from your birthing to the watch station, you had to call ahead to tell them you're coming, and you had to call when you get there to tell them you made it, and you had to travel in partners in case, in case you get seriously injured. And as I remember when I was walking from the birthing to my watch station, I had to go up one passageway. And as the ship would roll, Pretty soon you're walking on one wall and then it would start to roll back and you're on the floor again and it would roll this way and pretty soon you're walking on the other wall. And we went through some very severe storms in that, but I gotta be honest, I was never nervous inside that ship. I was never, never nervous. So I was safe in there. However, if you were to maybe go heads up with that thing when she's clipping along at about 23 knots, and let's say you're in a kayak or a paddleboard, it's, it's bad news. It's unsafe. Does this make sense? If you want to rebel against God, if anyone would rebel against God and persist in that rebellion, it's like a kayak taken on a warship. It's you should be terrified. Right? So God is terrifying. But if you surrender to Him, you put your trust in Him, and say, "Hey, listen, you're you're in control, not me. I want to do things your way, not mine. You're King. There's nothing in this world that you need to fear." There is no safer place to be than in God, in his king. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And you might ask, listen, if God's really in control, why is there so much evil? One, we can't blame God for the evil actions of human beings. Let's stop blaming God for stuff evil people do. Two, if we had a clue how much evil God is restraining in this world, we would never question him. And three, if God were to restrain all evil, you and I would be utterly restrained. We can't kind of pick and choose. God, let my evil persist, but take care of that. No. Listen, if you're trying to make sense of how does it work that God's in control, but there's, there's still a presence of such evil, the best place to look is the cross of Jesus Christ, where the most evil act 
ever committed by mankind took, took place. But at the same time, somehow their actions in God's brilliant sovereignty and providence served his purposes perfectly. Most evil thing ever done, and somehow we benefit from it. Okay, there's, at the cross, there's a collision of a chaotic evil world that seems to be out of control with God's perfect sovereignty. I know there's a, I know there's a million reasons coming at you. I know there's a million reasons shouting at you in your life right now of why you shouldn't trust God. There's a million little things that'll come at you and say, see, you shouldn't actually trust God. See, he's not actually in control of this thing. But no matter how turbulent it feels down here, the message of Psalm 2 is that Jesus is still on his throne. And he's not nervous. He's still in control. I know it's a chaotic world, but we've got a confident God. So my original question, I'd like to invite the musicians to come back up. Now, my original question, so what do you do when you feel like the world is out of control? What do you do, what do, you do when you feel like the world is out of God's control? First thing, if you follow the pattern of the psalmist, is you look to heaven and you remember that Jesus is still on his throne, he's still in control, he's still king. And then a, an important follow-up question is, what do you do when you realize Jesus is king? You surrender to him. You say, you're in control, not me. And then you say, would you help me trust you? So would you stand now, church, if, if you're able, And my challenge for us this week is this. This week, would you take time and evaluate your fears? Just kind of go through them. I, I mean real ones, not like spiders or <laughs> clowns or some nonsense. I mean, unless that's really affecting your day-to-day -day life. Would you evaluate your fears? Like, here's where I'm terrified and I'm not trusting God. Would you evaluate those? Maybe bring them to God. Spend a little time repenting of any area of lack of faith, saying, God, I'm just not trusting you here. I need, I need your help. Will you help me trust you in this area again? And then ask God this. Say, God, will you give me a bigger vision of Jesus? I, mean, I, I need a bigger picture of this king on his throne in control. And I think God will help us. And we'll, we'll, we'll trust him even more. So now let's sing to this Lord of ours who is indeed in control.